Welcome to Technically Sound, episode 3, for October 28th, 2021. Welcome to Technically Sound, episode three. As you can see or hear, we're getting off to a really great start. Thank you for joining. Yeah, thanks. Uh, it's a miracle we made it <laughs> with uh, all this technical difficulties we have here. We will learn how to podcast and stream at the same time eventually, at some point. Speaking of podcasts, if you are listening live, we do have a RSS feed you can subscribe to now. We're like everywhere. We're on Spotify. We're on uh, Apple Podcasts, uh, wherever you may get your podcasts. Apple, uh, Google, some other random ones that I don't know, but we can't say that. Great. Uh, yeah, uh, if you guys want to follow with all our updates, all our episodes, and all our technical failures, uh, be sure to follow <laughs> on uh, anchor.fm slash technically dash sound. Good stuff awesome. there, guys. Good stuff. Yeah. This weekend is Venom's second year uh, launch party, and so it's basically like an anniversary for Venom. Uh, this is their which two-year I know party. is a two-year party, right? Yes, I know that. Yes, which yes. he knows is a two-year party. We also discussed this. Um, yeah. <laughs> and next tomorrow, starting at about eleven thirty to eleven forty, just kind of tune in and hang out until everything starts. Uh, we will kick everything off with a country countdown, I believe. Um, Ooh, yeah. Or, uh, I think it's uh, Brian it's hosting it. Yeah, it's, it's Brian. Channel? I don't know exactly what he's doing, though. Um, hopefully we can get that up so that people can know what's going on. Definitely tune in. Basically from 11.30 tomorrow morning to about 10 at night, uh, maybe later, if uh, question a question goes later. We're, it's a lot of hours we're, of party. Yep, we're having a stream, uh, and everybody who has a show on Venom is participating. Even us, we didn't think we were initially. Yeah, we are, um, we're in a party mood. Must be we Halloween. are in a party mood. <laughs> and then Saturday at 10 o'clock in the morning to about 10 plus at night, again, everything starts. Um, and same thing for Sunday uh, from 10 to however late the arcade ends up going that night. Uh, so Wait, for our what part, are we doing? What's our party about? Yeah, We do have a party Sunday at 10 in the morning. You can join the Church <laughs> of CV Stats. Be there or be square. <laughs> <laughs> At 10 in the morning. I don't even know. Like, I, I don't know. I wouldn't. Uh, I, I, hey, I'm awake I feel bad at that asking time. people I'm to wake up by 10 th- in the morning on Sunday. I'm awake by like 6. Well, you need yeah. to sleep in. I'm out there already hitting the road, Jack. I'll have coffee. <laughs> Uh, anyway, so uh, Sunday at ten in the morning, from ten to noon, we are doing a deep dive on the code of C- like on CV stats. So basically, talking about how it was written, uh, how it works, why it was written the way it was. Uh, we talked about this on episode two, uh, but basically yeah, we just kind of going over the internals. Yeah, and we went a little into together. what CV stats, what's and uh, basically uh, the idea behind it. Right, that's what we went over. Yeah, we did go over. The very basics, so this time we'll be talking about code and just how uh, everything kind of works together and how it's constructed and architected and everything. And it's uh, brought to you by Tyler Littlefield himself. Go reckon. Awesome. So even though the code is not open source, uh, we will be kind of going over it and you can take a lot of these ideas and apply them to any new projects. It's written in React and it's a web app. Uh, So if you want to check it out ahead of time, it's uh, cvstats.net. And definitely let me know if you have ideas or comments or anything. All my contact information is there. Yeah. So 
We didn't talk about this, and before we get to the news, I kind of forgot to mention this uh, in our pre-episode planning, uh, but I think one of the really cool things that we're doing is, like, as a podcast, we're growing and we're kind of learning how to do things better as we go, and it's kind of cool to share all of that with the listeners because, like, from episode one, if you've joined (laughs) us from episode one or if you've listened back... um, even into episode three, there are episode some... three. I think it's a more spectacular and a failure. I think episode one we just went live before we were ready, but this one we we did go live and we were ready. <laughs> yeah, we were definitely ready and talking. Uh, but we've we've done a lot to to make this better. And I think one of the really important things is that this is listener directed. So for new listeners, the idea of this podcast is uh, for Eric and myself to give. Like ideas and tips and advice uh, from the perspective of two uh, blind software developers and just software developers in general because there are not very many uh, blind software developers actually in the industry. There's a lot of people like hobbyists which are really cool but we don't have a lot of devs uh, that are doing freelance work or have done like are holding software development jobs specifically and that means that we're going to be talking a lot about accessibility and how that works. Yeah. Um, it's a number of issues behind why that happens, but that's a topic for another podcast, another episode. That would actually be a really cool topic. I would, actually. See? Look, we do our planning yeah, on the episodes. <laughs> we do our brainstorming on the spot. We should go listen back. Every week when we plan, we're like, oh, that'd be a great episode. And then we just don't talk about it the next week when we're planning. So we should just go re-listen to our podcast. Like, so. Great idea. This is all potentially or hopefully listener driven. Uh, if you guys have topics that you would like to hear us cover and talk about, please let us know. Uh, one of the really cool ideas that we had when we started this whole project was that if you are starting a software development project or a server project or whatever, anything sort of technical, if you want to us to kind of talk about the architecture of that project or how things should work or what you know what should happen. Uh, please let us know and we can we can kind of walk through maybe how we might approach that project so that you can get going on it and give you some ideas, uh, some technologies to try to uh, think about. That's essentially the angle we're taking when we uh, we dissect CV stats on Sunday. We're basically just going to uh, bring to you the approaches and the concepts behind it and hope that you know, it could be useful for you. Exactly. Yeah. Also, there's not a lot of stuff in this room, so it's, it sounds super echoey. That's why. It's not because I'm you're in the not bathroom. as echoey as the first episode, <laughs> so you're, you're pretty not as first, yeah. I listened back to that, and it sounded like I was sitting in the bathroom. That was pretty great. I should have marketed that idea of uh, podcasting from the bathroom. Podcasting from the bathroom. Let's not scare all the listeners away just yet. <laughs> Moving on. All right. Want to get into some news? Uh, yeah. What's trending? What's happening? <laughs> So there's a lot of stuff that happened this week. Um, this is just me being petty, but it's kind of funny. So Trump's uh, so Trump after he got removed from Twitter and Facebook, and we've kind of talked a little bit about that and the content moderation. Um, yeah, decided that he was going to make his own social network because when you get really upset, you can't sit at the big kids table. You go make your own table, and then you hope that other people sit at the table with you. <laughs> so he made a Truth, I believe they're calling it Truth Social Network. And essentially, it was built on Mastodon, which is a like, distributed networking, uh, like distributed social network. Um, but because it's using open source like Mastodon and other pieces, it's those pieces are licensed under AGPL three, which means that 
they are required to share the source code of their website. They can't just take the, the source code and use it. They have to Ooh. attribute it and share it if you ask for it. Um, and if they do not do so within 30 days, their license to use the product is uh, violated, essentially. So, um, they, they requested that the reporters have, and other people have requested access to the source code and they have not provided that. And so, uh, we're, I definitely will follow this to kind of see what happens with it because. You think he will? Uh, they will I turn over the code? Yeah. Doubt it, but also it might actually be a legitimate license violation that goes somewhere. Um. Right. It's really hard if you're a, like a small-time developer to, to force something like this. But given who the target is, I can imagine they're probably going to get a lot of funding for it. So um, I'm interested to see kind of how this plans, like how this plays out as we go. Yeah. Interesting development, though. Um, such a huge oversight, though, not to like take that into consideration that the code has to be, has to be open source. Yeah. Yep. What must he have been thinking at the plan? Someone's going to get fired over that. (laughs) (laughs) You're fired. (laughs) His favorite phrase. Yeah, the the Trump catchphrase. So the other two, um, I had another one, but uh, I wanted to dig a little bit more into it. The other two are very related, and I definitely uh, wanted to kind of go down this road a little bit. So NPM uh, is a JavaScript package framework. So it lets you, if you're developing websites or anything JavaScript based essentially, use packages and libraries written by other people. And the cool thing about this is that it, it gives you, we've talked a lot about packages in the past and actually this episode is based around Python libraries, like our favorite uh, Python libraries. So when you download these packages, you are downloading them hoping, uh, generally, that the people that have published them have not put security uh, issues or anything into the code. And because when you download and install these packages, they run code for you when you install them, we don't know sometimes what code is being ran. So uh, they're calling it a supply chain attack. And what happened is someone injected um, so a while back on a Russian forum, there was a, an advertisement for $20,000 that gave the user an email and password to a developer's NPM account who oh, no. uh, had about the number of uh, views and downloads and package dependencies as this one did. It's called UA Parser. And what happened from that was the code was re like modified and uploaded and it was done in such a way that it was a major or a minor version change and a major version change so that different packages would pull them and when you pulled and installed the code it was basically a trojan that would start bitcoin mining Uh, this had um i think it was only up for a few hours but it has a pretty scary impact because a lot of larger systems like CI and CD systems, so code integration and code deployment. So um, a lot of companies and projects, specifically when they when they publish and work on projects, they have, when they push code, they have their 
CI/CD project, download mm-hmm. it, like pull the code and test it to make sure that everything runs okay. And those tests, by sort of default, require that you run and install these packages. Well. So it lasted for about four hours, um, and you people definitely may be infected, and they've been doing a lot of analysis on the firm or the uh, malware that was dropped. Um, to follow that, bad. though, yeah, that is really scary. That's huge, yeah. <laughs> um, and the the thing that I didn't really cover with this is that it's the UA-parser project. And mm-hmm. while you may not know what that is, I did not know what that was. It I has yeah, 1,200 plus... What's that? That's my follow-up. What is that? <laughs> I, I, I still don't know what that is. Okay. <laughs> but the, it's the problem is that... You don't even need to know what it is because it has 1,200 plus dependent. Like it, it is dependent on by 1,200 plus other packages. Right. So they found, and this is why they're calling it a supply chain attack. They found a very, very critical, crucial piece in the puzzle, and injected malware into it. So 1,200 plus. It's really hard to know like how many downloads of this have happened and occurred, and how many times was this installed and ran. So wow. uh, it's yeah. it's been removed, but definitely we're still kind of suffering from trying to figure out how that happened. How bad uh, how bad the attack was at the end? Because a lot of times with these uh you know these uh, hacks and these uh, malware injections, you don't realize how bad it is until much much later. So I imagine a lot of investigations going into that. Yep, exactly. Um, so my final news article is based around the same concept. The I, I don't know how to say the name of this game. It's Roblox. Roblox. Yeah, um, Roblox. it's a pretty popular game, and there are npm packages that use it uh, that basically give you access to the API, so you can script against it. And rather than it hijacking the package itself, what people did this time is created a Roblox dash something so they they changed the name and published two different types of packages in the hopes that people would download that one instead of the real one um and they were smart about it and when this started they initially kind of had the code that the api has so they made it look like they forked it and then they added their malware uh, and trojan and everything sort of into the middle of this and this one looks a lot more devastating it's not just uh, a cryptocurrency mining mm. uh script anymore it's it actually like it's a ransomware, specifically, and Trojan. You know, ransomware is a, a supposedly have been making a comeback. Is that part of it? Like ransomware I don't know. That is most definitely a in, like a really new attack vector. It's not the first time that NPM has had issues at all, mm-hmm. um, and it probably won't be the last. But it definitely is a new attack vector that people are going for. So it's it's got everybody kind of shaken up a little bit, for sure. I agree, yeah. Update your NPM packages quick. Update or don't, or whatever, or don't. you know? <laughs> We're not the boss You're kind of, of in trouble either way. Yeah. The scary part about it is it's really hard to know which, unless you really dig deep into the dependencies of each package, and even for CV stats, like when I run NPM install, it pulls so many packages that it's really hard for me to have and visualize a full tree of dependencies. So... This is a really hard attack to prevent because most people don't run and install their packages in a sandbox. And 
it's not anything that's going to hit the consumers of the packages generally unless we start getting into the point where we're injecting malware into these packages that will affect end users. It's really targeted at the developers and the CICD systems that uh, the companies are using. Right, yeah. That makes sense. Uh, it's probably the most vulnerable link there anyways, yeah. Yeah, um, it's interesting to kind of consider that the developers are the vulnerable link in this, <laughs> in this chain. We're supposed to be smart, man. suppose. We're just uh, problem solvers with thumbs. Okay, uh, Iran apparently got cyber hacked and they're blaming a foreign country even though uh, a lot of the... So they ended up hacking a bunch of systems. One of the most primary ones was like the petrol system. But they also hacked like their, uh, the billboards. So they were flashing a sign saying, Supreme Leader, insert name, where is our fuel? <laughs> and uh, Iran is blaming a foreign country. Uh, everyone believes is I, I love, you know, a political party inside Iran. <laughs> so I found that pretty amusing. Um, yeah, I actually heard about that this scope- morning. Yeah, the scope of hacking today, basically, it's what that brings to the table. Like, with one like uh, one successful like major hack like that, they were able to affect like the whole country basically by flashing like billboard signs. Uh, they did they did hack into the petrol system, but according to like this ABC article, it didn't really go that far into it. Just mentioned the billboard signs and the "Where's my fuel, <laughs> Supreme Leader." A lot of people are calling it hacktivism, but I don't think Iran's ever gonna acknowledge that. It kind of is, yeah, right? It's a, you know, politically charged, and it's a movement, basically. Or maybe it's supposed to look like hacktivism, and it actually is a government. (laughs) Or maybe it is hacktivism that looked like a government that is hacktivism, but works like a government. All right. We went in this loop already once in this show. (laughs) (laughs) Let's not do that one again. I mean, I think specifically, though, um, it wouldn't really surprise me if this was a government-led initiative and it is supposed to look like hacktivism. And it just really depends on how much into that, like how much they got from that system and what they like, what happened with it. Well, let's talk back to uh, one of the most famous uh, country hacks, like um, Sputniks or whatever. I'm sure you're familiar with that, right? Um, Did they believe that to be? Like at, that, at any point, did they ever believe that not to be a country entity doing that, a government entity, as opposed to uh, hacktivism? Because Sputnik was uh, very pointed, right? That one's it, not easily mistaken. Yeah, it was, but I don't think that there was ever any reason to think that it was anyone else. Right. Like, it had the earmarks of coming from another government. So, whereas this... I, I, I think my question more is how much is a country going to admit, especially a country like Iran, will they admit if it was actually a like a hack versus like right. and how much was taken from it or how much access was gained? It was out of uh lot of public uh public image if they admit it was someone else inside them. Yeah. yeah. Internal. Well, yeah. Cool. Well, um, I hope their supreme leader restores our billboards. Yep. Awesome. So is that? Um... That's it for my end. I'm sorry. I wasn't. Uh, no worries. Got a little super busy this week with school, but that's it for me. Sorry. There was 
something I saw, and I want to follow up on it, so we'll talk more yeah. about it maybe next episode, um, because I, I want to understand a little bit more about it. But the FBI raided uh, one of the larger, and I don't have the exact details, uh, point-of-sale distribution systems, because they have been linked to cyber attacks in the country. So I'm kind of curious what those are and how that's okay, going we, to play out. What exactly? Like they raided the headquarters, like the company headquarters, uh, because they're saying that it's a Chinese. It is a Chinese company, and it is okay. super cheap uh, systems. And so, essentially, the the issue is that um, they're saying that China or someone has been using this company to launch cyber attacks within our country. Wow, uh, I don't believe it's not possible. I believe it. Could be I don't know how that would possible, happen. Yeah, yeah I think it is definitely possible. I'm not saying it didn't happen. I think my question is: yeah. uh, Were they using the point of sale endpoints? Because everybody's like, "Well, they're really cheap. They're really cheap endpoints." So, uh, are they using the point of sale endpoints? And if so, how did we not catch this before? Um, so, say. I'm really interested to see how much more information about this comes out. Specifically, how successful are the raids like these? Like, like, is there a lot of publicity around these? Uh, these there raids? was definitely some publicity, but I think when I saw it, it was in the very early stages of this happened, okay. and we don't really have a whole lot to share with you. Uh, so I'm hoping that by next week we will have more to share with you. Cool. Go, go, people in blue, FBI. <laughs> Cool. Hopefully they're so, pointed at the right direction. I hope so. Um, yeah. Alternatively, it could just be that they're mad at China, which... Um, you know. Absolutely possible as well. That's why I mentioned it's like <laughs> not absolutely impossible, and that's completely possible, because it could happen, but most likely they're just mad and looking for an excuse to go in. That's... Yeah. I would not be surprised. Um, I am interested to know how long this will stay on the radar and how long it will take for it to just vanish where you can't really find any news on it. Depends if they find anything. If they find something, they'll probably be happy to say, yep, we denounced them for what they were. If they find nothing, it's just swept under the rug. (laughs) Yep. So this week's episode is based around the idea, I think... I don't remember if we mentioned it in our first launch or our second launch. See, we should have a second launch party, too. <laughs> uh, when we get to four years, we'll do it. Promise. Okay, except it's two years. Except. <laughs> of course it is. I knew that. <laughs> um, so the idea behind this episode was for us to talk about Python, and more specifically, our favorite Python libraries and what we use them for. And there are so many, and it's really hard. I think one of the things that I tend to get overwhelmed when I'm building projects, um, one of my favorite podcasts to listen to is Talk Python. And they always have really cool projects and really cool ideas and, and libraries and packages that they talk about. But it's really easy, especially when they start talking about building websites. And they're like, well, you've got to use Fast API and Pedantic and SQL Alchemy and um, all of these different things. And they just kind of run through these libraries. Like, everybody should know what they are. <laughs> and getting them actually installed and integrated and running and to get your app is its a very daunting task. So hopefully this will demystify some of that for you. Yeah. Couldn't put it better myself. 
right, so, so we uh, we got together and discussed a couple of libraries, right? Uh, I think our task for each other was to set out five libraries that we like or want to learn, I guess. Um, we ended up coming with to the table with more than that, and we had to trim the list down to just the last uh, five for each, right? Yes. Yeah. So, um, did you want to say something before I cut you off? No. No, you're good. Go for it. Okay. Well, so, um, I... <laughs> all right, yeah, actually, it. as we because we keep having this, um, something I wanted to mention, because we had talked about, and it's kind of going back a little bit, but yep. one of the things that we are working on is trying to get better at figuring out like how much time to give and how to not cut each other off. And interestingly, I, I made a post on Reddit, uh, because a lot of this sort of journey in the podcasting piece has been trying to figure out how we can get better. And we always have, after each episode, like, what did we do wrong and what could we do better? And everybody was talking about, you know, we're, on, we're always on Zoom and you know, we hold the chicken. So we, we hold our hand up like we're holding a, a rubber chicken. And when we're done, we put the chicken down. And that's when the other person knows to go, uh, which is not very helpful for us. So also we are still... too, holding your hand up. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of makes you talk a little bit less. Like, man, I don't want to hold that chicken no more. You hold the chicken. I wonder if they ever, like, throw it at each other. Like, just kind of yeah, toss like, the chicken yeah, to the camera. <laughs> Stop talking. Yeah. Just take it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have anything else to say. You take the chicken. Um, so this kind of leads to us thinking a lot about our dynamic and what we're doing and how we can do better uh, and sort of evaluating a lot of these pieces. So part of that, though, is that we are very much in informal, casual conversation podcast. And when we do bring people on, I would really like for it to stay that way. So that you know everybody's comfortable and it's a little bit less formal and a little bit less like a little bit more casual. So uh, you will most definitely probably hear us talking over each other a few times and then trying to figure out who gets to go next. You probably already heard uh, enough of that in the last two episodes. I think we are getting better at it though. Smooth transition. <laughs> so before I cut you off to go on that spiel, you were going to say something. You could. Ah uh, no, I was. Excuse me. <laughs> I was concluding what I was saying. Basically, uh, how we got together, we trimmed it down to five libraries each. And we'll probably mention more libraries as we discuss, because a lot of times uh, you end up doing like comparisons, like, oh, cool, how does uh, this one compare to this library? Or have you used this library in turn? So hopefully you get a good understanding of what libraries to use. And if not, you can also pick a couple libraries to play around with after this. I do hope that this does inspire you to grab some libraries. Yeah. I think one of the marks of a good programming episode is when you leave and you're like i want to go grab all those and play with them and build this project that uses all of them at the same time so maybe don't use all of them at the same time yeah last time we talked about fail to ban and i deny host i ended up downloading uh fail to ban and playing with uh playing around with it for like hour like two hours just like making rejects and stuff like that super cool and super flexible for what you can use it for it is really flexible it's a cool system so to segue from fail to ban, um, I guess my first library is PSUtil. Okay. What and is PSUtil? PSUtil, it does a a lot of uh, platform metrics, and it does them cross platform. So if you've ever written code in like C plus plus or any other language on Windows and Linux, you'll know that the Windows API is annoying. And the Linux API can also be kind of tough um, to use. And it's also kind of hard sometimes to figure out where to pull information from. 
because the ways that you get information sort of evolves over time. And if you change much about that, if you ever evolve or try to use another system like Mac or FreeBSD, uh, those are different, and they, they you get different data through CTL or something. So PSUtil, um, I'm actually using it in a couple different ways now. It gives you a way to see data like CPU usage, uh, processes, memory, virtual memory, paged memory, swap, hard drives, partitions, uh, network cards, There's all kinds of physical uh, of data um, based around hardware that is generally hard to get with Python any other way. Is uh, the fact that it might be like on different operating system uh, an issue at all with PS uh, determining those uh, type of resource informations? No, uh, so the cool Linux thing, or, yeah. yeah. So the cool thing is it is cross-platform, which is very much a Python uh, concept. But it also gives you, by default, all you always get some uh, basic data, no matter what platform you're on, as long as it's supported by PSUtil. And then from that point, it also gives you some other data based on the platform that you're on. So if there's extra data available, it will get it for you. And if not, you always get basic data. You always get partitions and, and things like that. Cool. How common are, does PSU to appear like in the workplace? Is there it's, a lot of uh, workplaces using it? Monitoring, I don't know if a lot of workplaces are using it, but definitely monitoring and metrics and things are really important. So. I use it on my NAS. I have a, a script that I wrote a while back, and it just monitors bandwidth. And there's things like VNStat that work as well, but VNStat can be a little bit messy sometimes. And I want to store a list of dates. So I'm very statistics driven. I like to have numbers and data. I want to be able to use that data to do analytics and everything. Mr. Data, that's you. Yeah, it's, it's great fun. I use it for for bandwidth monitoring. Um, we're also working on a game together that we'll probably talk about sort of as this podcast evolves. And something I started doing was um, we have a notification when the game starts up and shuts down that goes out to Discord for us. But if the game crashes, that notification does not get triggered. So I started, uh, and I haven't really finished it or even talked about it much, but uh, just sort of last night creating a monitoring system that will monitor when the game is up and if it goes down it will also send a message it's like psutil no, like notice uh game shut down or something now how would that work exactly would you be uh, pinging the server itself like uh on constant intervals no it just um so it it kind of works like the concept of fail to ban where it just runs for a little bit and if it checks the process list and if it notices that the the move or whatever is down okay. it will send a message out Kind of like a cron tab, basically, right? Just uh, is it like a cron tab? Yeah, except that it runs as a daemon. And you're using a PS two PSU for that, right? Yes, I am. Very cool. Well, I've not used PSU those, but uh, I might use it after this. Pretty cool. Uh, my first library, and segueing into that is a uh, request, which is a. Uh, HTTP, HTTT, HTTP, I get that out eventually. Two T's, one H, H, one P. Two T's. <laughs> yeah. Maybe a few H's. One H, several P's. Uh, library, it's supposed to make HTTP easy, right? So uh, it can compose HTTP requests and um, various methods. 
get post uh, to name a few, uh, delete, uh, put, and so on and so forth. It's basically a, a curl library if you're more familiar with like uh, shells, like a curl, uh, lip curl. Yeah. Um, that's a bunch of stuff, including uh, TLS and SSH verification. So you can use it to navigate to HTTPS websites um, and it works flawlessly. It's actually pretty, pretty basic. Like as in uh, a lot of people will be using requests because it's in the, the heart of many different projects. Features could be customized and optimized as per required. Uh, you could do keep alive. So uh, if you have a connection open, uh, in order to keep the remote server from closing it down, you can have uh, the Python request library uh, do keep alive, which is basically what I was talking to Ty about, how sending like pings to the server to check if it's alive. So that, that would be a keep alive feature of it. Supports international and uh, local do uh, domains and URLs. Never use an international domain, but if I could, I could. I have the option. Yeah, so lots of stuff I can do. Um, I don't really know how to go for, uh, more into this because because just because I believe like request is so popular that everyone must have heard it by now. But yeah, I'm willing to answer questions. I think if you haven't heard of it, you've probably used it in Python packages. Yeah. It tends to be uh, the. Like Python does have HTTP request stuff built into a standard library, but requests is generally much easier to use. And so if you're making calls to like a RESTful API, for example, it most definitely will appear there. Yeah, and if I'm, you I know are making there are calls, other libraries. If you are making calls and like doing post requests, it, uh, I'm not too sure whether that's in the JSON library or the request can also uh, encode it for you in JSON. I think it uses the Python JSON library. Okay, yeah, so... But it will, uh, I, I think it will decode at least, come on. It's gotta do that much. I think it does just with the Python. Um, but what you could also do is there's a, I think it's called UJSON. The, in the original Python JSON library was written in Python itself, but there's a UJSON which is written in C. And I tend to use that if I'm doing a lot of JSON work, uh, especially if I'm encoding and decoding lots of data that was not on my list but right. and i think request has a way to set what encodes and decodes like how it encodes and decodes so you can make it use ujson if you're doing a lot of um manipulation although at that point your bottleneck's probably gonna be the network and not your cpu <laughs> yeah well there you have it kids request <laughs> awesome if you have any requests or you know uh questions Form an HTTP request and send it along to me and I'll get it. <laughs> Depends how good the request is. I might get oh, okay. it formatted properly. Yeah. I'll turn on keep alive and send it. Keep sending it to him. <laughs> so my next library is Pydantic. And I when I work on code, and actually um, Pydantic and a couple of the another one of the libraries that I want to talk about are very much based around code quality. So Pydantic works with Python 3's type hints, and if you haven't used Python 3's type hints before, there are a way to tell the interpreter what type of variable to expect. So Python in general is very loosely typed, so you can have an integer, like a variable that holds an integer, and you can convert it to a string without pretty much any issue. Yeah. Uh, type yeah. hints limit that a lot more. 
Um, and they also tell an IDE and a linter and things like that that you might have broken something if you assign a string to an integer. So Pydantic kind of takes that a step farther and it gives you a base. Um, it works a lot like ATTRS if you ever use that and it gives you some, some form of Dunder methods. Um, there's also the data class library that's built into Python 3.8 plus now, I think. And it gives you for deserializing and serializing data. So over HTTP, um, one of Eric's libraries uses this as well but it's really useful for validating data before you try to deserialize and serialize it. And it makes sure that when you take data with type hints and you're trying to validate nested data structures, for example, or you're trying to deserialize or serialize them, whether over the wire or from a file or um, however you might be doing it, that those validations are applied through the type hints and it will let you know if it fails. Very impressive. Yeah. Uh, you you mentioned it's like a HTTPRS. That's the that's the library that lets you define like custom variables, like uh, the underline the under variables, basically. Yeah. Of. So HTTPRS works a little bit differently, and it's more of like a boilerplate. Um, mm -hmm. I wish, like, I hope they get together at some point and kind of work together to to give you everything because I don't think that they would work together in tandem. Uh, because you have two different libraries writing Dunder methods. And I guess to explain Dunder methods in Python are like underline, underline, init. So like the Dunder is like the double underline. Uh, under, uh, Dunder str, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, things that Python uses on objects. So it, it is somewhat similar, but it works differently for sure. And I would really like to be able to use them together because I love both of them. Uh, my next library, moving right on, unless uh, you have anything else to add to that. No, I don't think so. Great. Is uh, another super, super duper popular one, and um, it's called Scrapey. So Scrapey, uh, by the name gives it away, is a web, uh, web scraper. And what it does, it uh, allows you to create tools, or what they call spiders, to crawl the web and parse data and return it back to you. Now... Web scrapers are incredibly useful for like scraping news webs uh, websites, uh, like a bunch of job uh, job hunting uh, websites use it in their uh, in their backend to search for uh, open site uh, open jobs and stuff like that. And display it to you, matching your criteria. It's written in Python, obviously, because it's a Python library. <laughs> it follows the. Uh, it gives you a web crawling shell. Apologies for the beeping. I thought it was me. <laughs> Sorry. No, it's Thanks. outside my window. It sounds like a truck or something. I wish I could it's like crazy. do something with those. I've been. Anyway. I lived in a quick little side story. I lived in a house that had like a dying fire alarm for so long, and so that <laughs> anytime I hear like a beep, I just assume it's my house. <laughs> that I'm. Back I always in used to know again. when your team talk would die. Like I think that alarm was more annoying to everybody that you talked to than it was to you. <laughs> it was great. Oh yeah, it stopped. It stopped hearing it after a while. So Scrapey also gives you a web crawling show, so you can test behavior of a website. So that's super cool. You kind of like uh, oh, test cool. on, the about that. on the live, yeah. Uh, you can uh, export scripts and stuff like that too. So um, using a command line for Python, you can export scripts in case you want to uh, duplicate it, export it, 
to your friend or whatnot. Yeah, that's creepy. Um, I've used it a lot. I use it a lot for like uh, like searching Reddit or whatever or and parsing data from that. I uh, can also use it for searching for news articles as well. It's very useful, very versatile. Something that you might want to think about, and I can't talk too much about uh, the work that I did because it was under an NDA, but um, fancy, there fancy. are services that kind of go along with Scrapey. So I built a proxy that basically took um, like multiple hundreds of thousands of requests and pr like passed them off to different worker nodes so that your scraping would be spread out across multiple workers. And so if you do get to the point where you are scraping and you're doing it at a volume, there are services out there um, that are geared around this idea of distributing your requests out. So it's like a proxy, but like think of it as like a Tor proxy, basically, where it doesn't suck as much as Tor in terms of speed. Um, and you actually get results back without waiting for smoke singles. You pay a lot for privacy and security. <laughs> You do. It's terrible. It's a struggle. And it turns out it's not all that secure anyway. So, you know. <laughs> Using it, uh, yeah, because what would happen a lot of times, and I think the ties uh, kind of leading up to it, is that if you use a scraper too, like, uh, enthusiastically, for lack of a better word, on a, like a website, they will block <laughs> your, uh, your scraper. So you kind of yeah, have do. to be subtle about it. You have to, uh, they don't want you just uh, going there and ripping through their, through their site. They want you actually be there for legitimate uh, business so it helps to uh, spread out your traffic they definitely want you to be there legitimately i think part of it too is that a lot of sites have uh apis that they want you to pay for so yeah. i've been working on this like I, I collect wine um and i have like a wine fridge and everything and one of the things that i want to be able to do is track prices as they fall and drop and uh go up and as auctions happen and be able to pull data on those and there are apis that they cost you like multiple hundreds of dollars they're pretty expensive For and it's something wine? that you generally have to renew what's that it costs that much to track it wine? is expensive yeah per year i think um holy smokes they're also not super accessible it's yeah so I was looking at doing something like this just because that data is kind of hard to pull and I want to be able to aggregate it so that I can actually just know. And I don't want to sell it to anybody. I just want it for, for me so that I can say, like, these are the bottles. Like, I want to have a wine yeah. inventory system because um, so my fridge basic. holds, like, 16 or 18 bottles, I think. Basic um, accessibility, basically. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's lack of of data accessibility it's really it's really frustrating um because everybody wants to sell you that data like well okay but everybody's data is slightly different and i want to just combine it and to be able to use it to know and to index my own collection uh and moving that up to scale i'm actually looking at like investing in wine as well and so that data is really important to have and i will probably end up having to use something like scrapey to pull and aggregate that data and store it somewhere yeah uh Going back to your project, how come uh, like doing like a QR QR code thing is not an option for you? Uh, I think it is, but it would just like I want more data about that wine. I want prices and and other metrics, especially if I'm investing in it. So 
um, what I would be doing is paying for storage space and buying cases, um, like getting 40 or 50 bottles of wine at a time and storing them in a storage and holding them for a few years until they are old enough or they are mature enough and then I can sell them. And that's going to require a lot of data analytics and it already has, like I've got some code written around that already, but that data is generally not something that you would get from a QR code. And I also want uh, to be able to know like what is out there right now. Right. That makes so that sense, I know what yeah. to buy. Um, what's your oldest bottle? Out of curiosity sake. What's um, like circa three months. <laughs> no, a lot of them aren't. Um, a lot of them are pretty. So I think um, one of the ones that I really like is from France. It's like Poulet Fousse. I don't know if I'm saying it right. Uh, and their older ones are from early 2000s. Cool. So well, 18, uh, 16, 18. You see a lot of that with whiskey as well. You can get like a 40-year like Tlaxcar or something like that. Uh, but those are much harder to collect. And usually that means that it's aged in the barrel uh, as opposed to aging in the bottle. Whereas a lot of wines can actually age in their bottles age well <laughs> i guess it, it depends on the wine um it, it's and that's kind of something else that you want to collect too is like based on and it, i don't fully understand it yet so i've been learning a lot more about it but based on the chemical compounds like some of the tannins actually break down as it ages which means that you get a lot of a lot less of that like bittery alcohol flavor and you get more of like a smooth you like get like more of the flavors of the wine itself yeah. okay that's fascinating. Cool. Uh, totally not what the podcast is about, but great. This week in wine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Technology and wine always mixes. Uh, so my next library I picked is a fun one. It's the NLTK library, which stands for Natural Language uh, Toolkit. Toolkit. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking about that. I was like, what does that TK stand for? Yeah, I was like, in my head, I was saying natural language parsing, but there's no P in there. (laughs) Well, just make it like HTTP, NLTT, PPPPP, and then you can have your parsing. Add enough letters and eventually one will be right. (laughs) So NLTK, the toolkit itself, uh, allows you to work with the English language. I don't think, and feel free to correct me, I don't think it has any other language besides English that you can work with. It might be a different uh, toolkit you can use. I don't use think so. It, Mostly because English yeah. already sucks to parse. That's kind of a full-time job. Uh, processing the grammar of English sounds like the full-time job <laughs> that it does. That sounds which terrible. It does. I would need a lot more wine bottles to process grammar of English. Oh, but it's so like, cool. I would like four more wine fridges before I work on your toolkit, please. So I'm, half temp- I'm even tempted to use like the NLTK. NLTK. Saying letters that have more than three letters is hard. Is that like a great experiment that I want to try for like making like a grammar checker because it does that it can check uh, your sentences for grammar and what it allows you to do it uh, lets you split that sentence down into words and those words you can tag so it, it can tag them with like pronouns it can tag them with uh, adjective depending on what the word actually is in the part of uh, the speech you used it in so I think it's that's super duper handy for that so if you want to make like a grammar checker that's probably what you'd go with. I imagine that is probably a lot of the basis of those. It's also um, the yeah. basis for if you've ever worked on Amazon skills for devices who I will not name because I oh, forgot to really? turn the volume down before I started this. <laughs> um, <laughs> I always do. I always set the volume to zero. I'm like, it's going to tell me I got a package or something in the middle of a podcast. Well, somehow you always um, end up saying her name in every episode. 
So yeah, somehow she's. I think she's just yeah reoccurring. I don't remember episode one, but I know he's definitely said in the last episode. So if you're working on those kinds of skills, the intents and things you use are very much where it splits up those words and does um, audio processing to get the words, and then a lot of language processing to split those down for you. So that's also a really good example of where that's used. NOTK? I would imagine they probably do. Different type. Okay. Like the Python library itself? I don't know if they use the Python library itself, but I'm sure they use a lot of like natural language processing for stuff like that. Or for like chatbots and things like that. Cool. Yeah, I could imagine so. Uh, NLTK also does like numeric and symbolic uh, parsing as well, so not just uh, language. So I guess if you wrote out the number 1,300,000, it could translate that into uh, words. Super duper cool. Cool. Uh, so also if you're triggered too. by calling Expedia and trying to book a flight and it doesn't <laughs> get your number, your number is 326. I'm going to write a whole NLTK. Yeah. I'm going to write a whole script to schedule my Expedia trips. <laughs> Tell them technically sound sent you. Where are you raging? <laughs> yeah, just use our, uh, use our code out at any Expedia checkout <laughs> to get, <laughs> get more money added to your trip. <laughs> Um, yeah, symbolic, numeric, I said that. Uh, has a discussion forum, too. So if you're confused on how to use it, you can log on to their discussion forum, which I should provide a link to in the show notes uh, if you, anyone's really interested in NLTK, like I am, which you can then ask further questions up there. And the forum is super helpful, super friendly people. That so, is really cool. Yeah. How many libraries do you know that have their own forums, active, active forums going <laughs> I think three on my list. Okay, screw you. <laughs> Sorry. Steal my thunder, why don't you? Yeah, that's all I can say for NLTK. Do you have any uh, cool questions? Yeah, it'd be really cool to see if we can comments? actually like be into submission for a grammar checker because... Um, yeah, so cool. Grammarly sucks. So, Grammarly is actually really cool. I love the concept, and they put a lot of work into it, but they ignore all requests for accessibility so if you want to tell they them their app is not accessible they just kind of ignore you so their um, app is accessible like 10 percent only I've, I've only been able to use it for a spell checking like uh any other like fancy grammar parsing it does not work well i used to really like it like installed in my web browser because it would be like you messed up yeah. 75 times and you did these things and it would send you an email every week. like wow this is my <laughs> weekly email how yeah. i suck <laughs> Like, the New York Times is like, start your week off right. Pay us a dollar and we'll tell you all the good things. And Grammarly's like, man, your writing really sucks. Um, it bring me down this Monday. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Grammarly. You're my, you're my reason why Mondays suck. But, it like, the toolbar and everything, I really want to use that because I'm starting to, once I get some things cleared off my plate of things to do, I really want to start using it. And especially for blog articles and things like that, so I can write better. Yeah. I are a good writer. And I want Grammarly to help with that, but they don't make it accessible. So it'd be really cool to see if NLTK is a good grammar check. Related to that, um, there are like many different grammar checking APIs out there, but like you mentioned, they cost money to run. So, I mean, and the libraries that are out there, I've only looked into like uh, C++ grammar libraries, which are very, very scarce, but like English parsing grammars, that is. Yeah, I remember we looked yeah. into that for the mud as well to 
see if we could uh, grammar yeah, check areas. So NLTK might be a better solution. Just to... That'd be cool. Yeah. Food for thought. Moving right on. Uh, I changed this one. I don't, I don't think I told you about this uh, library, uh, Ty. I, cha- uh, I picked PyWin32. Man, so, I was going to throw in a random library, and I was like, I don't want to be rude, because he's going to be mad at me for throwing in a library no, that I didn't no, talk about. No. I value spontaneousness. <laughs> yeah. Okay, now I know. Spontaneousness makes the world go around. Well, next week, because you did this, I'm going to throw in like a triply circular linked doubly list or something. <laughs> and I'll and I'm gonna be like, let's talk about this triple linked double <laughs> list. I'm going to look that up ahead of time. Cool. Anyhow. Go for it. It came from a Google. So PyWin32 is a super duper nifty library. If you have a lot of Windows feature, a lot of Windows tasks that you want to automate, so what PyWin32 does, it, it's essentially a wrapper or a launcher into a Windows uh, component object model COM. See, that's easy to say, just three letters. <laughs> so, kind of like struggled so, a little bit there, a little bit, but I do what I can. It basically Sorry. lets you manipulate your windows as, as if you were using it from the command line. So, um, and it gives you a bunch of other little features too, like uh, like the ability to manipulate Excel, anything Windows basically. And you could do that straight through uh, through PyWin32. Um, there are other Excel libraries that like you manipulate it, but uh, I think PyWin32 is pretty inclusive and like the fact that you can wrap any Windows project uh, within limit, I haven't really pushed it. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's like using the command line basically. So, and, and that's why it's called a launcher because you're basically just using the Windows COM. So it also does wrap cool. some yeah. Win API calls too, I think, um, because COM is pretty slow. It's Microsoft's terrible yeah. like, it, Well, it can be kind of slow. Um, it's also a terrible to write code for. Uh, I've used the. Uh, that particular uh, library, Pine One Thirty Two, for updating like Excel sheets and stuff like that, it's pretty useful for that. So, yeah, basically, just uh, if I had like automated data that I wanted to input to Excel, like when I was doing uh, one point was like maintaining like my own little budget Excel, and I wanted to do it just for the hell of it. I know there's like easier methods out there, but uh, yeah, so I'd use like Pine One Thirty Two to like input data that I feed back to it. There's another library I just heard about. It's called PyWin Auto. Um, it reminds me, it sounds way too much like Auto IT, but um, I think okay. it's also for automating. I think it works across platform. And I could be wrong. I, it was a very brief, uh, I very briefly heard about it. Okay. Uh, did you want to try a library of yours to break the monotony of my libraries? Sure. Um, <laughs> so the next one I had was SQL Alchemy. And I really love the concept of abstraction, uh, being able to code to an interface. And SQL Alchemy is two things. It's an ORM and it's also an interface to multiple database engines. So the reason I, so uh, two things there. One of the really cool things about it is that if you decide to switch from say SQLite or uh, MySQL to like PostgreSQL, which everybody should do because it's, I definitely like PostgreSQL more. Than, oh, uh, whoa, where's this bias coming from? Sorry, sorry. I, I had to switch it a couple of times. And I was like, I, I love this more just because it, it handles columns better. I know. Um, SQLite's like great for a lot of things. 
but uh, if you if you if you switch or you're you're writing code, uh, there's a couple pieces to this. One of them is that if you are writing in Python or most languages, you typically work with the driver specifically. So you'll work with a MySQL driver or PostgreSQL driver, or SQLite or whatever. And the calls that you might make are different. So if you decide that you want to switch uh, because you listen to this podcast and wanted to try PostgreSQL <laughs> or something, uh, you know, I, I'm not the boss of you. <laughs> um, <laughs> then reworking all of your code means that you have to rewrite all of the underlying logic that works against those like database AP, like the database drivers alternatively if you use something like uh, sql alchemy you get to write your code once and if you ever change your engine you just change the connection strings and you're good to go uh, oh, this also works right with there. it is really cool i love it for that um, it's one of the things i tend to use most in most of my Python projects. Um, one of the other things that it does is it gives you Alembic support. And so getting into database uh, definitions a little bit, when you, um, let's say that you have like two servers or two like pr um, places where your app is deployed, like dev and production. So dev could be on a server or your own system and the production is where it's live. You might make database changes on dev and those changes might need to be rolled into your production database. And so the way that database migrations work is you write uh, SQL commands or code that will upgrade and change your database. And so the database uh, migration engine will keep a timestamp of like, this is the last migration that you performed on this database. And when you deploy your system, your code to a new server, it checks to see if your database is up to date. And if it's not, it will run the SQL commands that will actually cool. modify yeah. your database. This is really cool because you start out with what's called a seed database, so your very first structure. And it's, um, I, I see this a lot in like corporate work. <clears throat> so for example, um, where I work right now, one of our larger projects has code go like, I think database engine or database support going back all the way, like migrations all the way into like 2013. So it takes a good like five minutes to rebuild or 10 minutes to rebuild the database because it's, it is, yeah, it runs all of like every change that anyone has ever made to the database gets a run on that database until it gets up to date, which is really cool to watch. That also means you can roll back. So SQL Alchemy works with Alembic where it tells you basically um, you can generate your migrations and it will, it'll run them for you. Popular is SQL Alchemy. It is huge. Um, huge. <laughs> Flask. I'll talk about Flask later. Flask has support for it. A lot of things use it. I think. I don't think Django uses it because they're they have their own. Django's ORM. already pretty. Uh, it's pretty integrated with its own stuff. Uh, it's yeah, full uh, full fledged framework. So yeah, right. Uh, so like situations where you consider using a SQL Alchemy, it's like a, while developing like a really complex website, right? You'd say like with a database management and uh, authors authentication and stuff like that. It doesn't even have to be complex. So what I wanted to talk about next is the ORM piece of this. So what ORM is, is object relational management. So you basically model objects as you want to model them in the database. So for example, you can have a user class and then a profile class and an account class and all of this data that you have separated by object and you separate them so that each object 
is its own table, essentially. So you create the code um, using SQL Alchemy. You define your columns basically in the Python code so that they're always linked with the code that you're working on. And SQL Alchemy will create the tables for you and it will retrieve and store the data that you need to retrieve and store. So it handles a lot of that for you. So anytime I really use a database in Python, I always reach for SQL Alchemy unless I just have like one or two quick commands that I need to run. Now it's a little restrictive where it only logs you into just using SQL databases, right? Uh, yeah, it is, you. but yeah, yeah, just relational databases essentially. Um, so no SQL databases are probably not going to work in that. Uh, but you would you would handle them differently anyway. And so if you were really concerned about that, you could just create an interface that would pull and retrieve objects for you, and then you could always just change the underlying. Uh, Do you know of a library though that uh, that handles like? Uh, structured and non-structured or relational and non-relational I should say don't think so not an ORM I can't really imagine how you would do that okay cool Uh, but I think you could you could write it pretty easily if that's something that you wanted to do the cool thing with SQL Alchemy is it it supports all the different modeling behaviors that you might expect so like one-to-one many-to-one many-to-many one-to-many I think that's all of them and they are really easy to do. So when you think about them and you're creating databases, if you're doing it by hand, which is how I've always made database tables and foreign keys and everything, I always have to stop and think about like which tables are in the database and how does this work. And when you're working on projects that have like 50 plus tables, which is not really uncommon, it gets really easy to lose track of what tables are what. So you link them in the code itself and then you don't have to worry about it. You're basically just done. Be a great idea for like writing a kind of like a wrapper that just uh, checks against uh, all this stuff before you add like an entry. You could write a wrapper around using a SQL Alchemy. What do you think? Like for the game. Before you add an entry to what? To any SQL table so it'll do all the hard work of making sure your tables are formatted. I have yeah. built tables in Python and then just made SQL Alchemy like generate the table like the, the logic or like the SQL to create the yeah, table Yeah, just for to me. save you time and save you uh, actual yeah. time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because it's it's just it's just a, a class, and you, you create your columns, and then you model your relationships. And so SQL Alchemy, you can use create all, which is how Alembic works. And it will you can make it just spit out the SQL for you. And so if you do want to just create tables, like let's say uh, for us, I haven't done it with SQLite just because our, our tables, but the game that we're working on, a lot of our data stored in SQLite. And so it'd be really cool to moderate this data just by to monitor and just create this data just by creating the, the Python classes and then running them. Yeah, impressive. So if your SQL uh, skills are not super strong, then definitely you can model them in your class and then you can just spit out the structure that you want. If, yeah, that's exactly and, what I was thinking about, like a wrapper that just that does all the hard work for you. <laughs> yeah, and that's actually really yeah. helpful for people that are blind because like a lot of the relational diagrams and everything uh, are not super accessible. And so when you're creating databases and tables and you're modeling everything, you usually see those in trees and structures and everything. And you know that would be handled much differently uh, in this case, like you don't really have to do it because your modeling happens in code. See, we do talk about accessibility now and then. <laughs> we do occasionally. So my next library is Flake 8. Um, I love the idea of code consistency and code style and making sure that your code is just clean. And part of that is the style and the way that you write it. 
so Flake 8, what you can do, and what I've always done with Python projects is I'll, I'll wire it up to Git or like my CI CD framework or pipeline. And so when I commit code, if the Flake 8 fails, meaning that if if it found issues in my code, it will send an email out and let me know I can, and I can fix them. Python is governed by standards called PEP8. And all these standards talk about how you should name functions and classes and how much spacing should be between your import statements in your class and uh, where your doc string should be and should there be spacing before or after your doc string. And I really like following this because it tends to keep your code clean and easier to read. And part of knowing a language for me specifically is do I know how to write in that like stylistically, do I know how to write according to the language guidelines? Hmm. So, um, Flake 8 and Flask, which is something I'll cover later too, has a lot of plugins. And so Python libraries you'll often find can be extended with plugins. Um, so I have a few notable Flake 8 plugins. So there's Flake 8-black. Uh, black is a code formatter, and they basically say that like you give up all um, chances to format your code, and we just do it for you. <laughs> <laughs> it's really cool because you can define rules and change things if you want. Okay, you actually, like the way it does it. There's a. What's up? I know of one of. Uh, I think it's like a. It's kind of it's a Python plugin, but uh, it does uh, it works in Atom, the text editor. Not that I've ever used it. Uh, do you know what yep. I'm talking about? I don't. I don't, but I know. Yeah, I know it exists. I think that might have been what kind of inspired the concept of black. Yeah. Okay. Um. Yeah, so it, it basically just formats your code for you. And so when you run Fleek 8, it just it, it doesn't report errors, it just fixes them. The other one is Flake 8. Well, there's a few, so we'll just kind of go through some of my favorites. Yeah. Uh, Flake 8 built-in. So check that Python variables, like variables that you're using aren't Python built-ins, which is really important uh, as Python grows and gets you know more and more built-ins added to it. You want to make sure that you're not, you're, you're, name, you're naming conventions aren't colliding because python is a first class language sorry about that <laughs> so worries that means that you can essentially replace functions uh so you can assign a string to a function and it will replace it so if you happen to use a variable as a built-in especially if it's a global and you do something with that variable and then something else later calls that variable and it's like well cannot call string like your your application will crash so, <laughs> application uh, crashing is generally a bad sign. It is generally a bad sign. You do not want that. That's not how things should work. Um, the next one is today, like eight commas. Yeah. No, your code will not be. Um, so, like eight commas is pretty basic. It just makes sure that things like lists and dictionaries have a trailing comma at the end, which is very stylistic, but it also um, makes it easier to append. If you know that there will always be a trailing comma, you always just add your element in a trailing comma if you're modifying static variables. The next one, I actually had a couple, but we can um, skip some. Uh, the one that I really thought was cool and I wanted to grab and start using is called flake8-print. So the reason I like this is because I tend, when I'm debugging, to put print statements everywhere. Uh, that's, <laughs> like, <laughs> that's how I'll debug. 
I'll have like print beep and like that tells me that I entered a function and print goodbye. Uh, that tells me I left this function and like I put them in I'll like print. inside if if yep. else statements inside yep. functions. We made right? it. Yep. yep. Like, I'll have all <laughs> this of these far. messages. <laughs> I go, this far. Okay. Attaboy. <laughs> Good job. Good job. It's where you pat yourself on the back and like this print statement ran. This is okay. Um, which is my way of just kind of verifying that my code made it to a certain point. If it executes that print statement, then I know it made it there. And also, please don't mind the uh, prancing dog behind me. It's almost time for food, and he gets very antsy at this time. Um, he will probably be joining us on many a show for the for the background. So if like eight print, essentially just make sure that you don't have uh, code, the uh, print statements in your code, which is really helpful. And really, you shouldn't if you... Or working on a web app or something, you should just write like logging code if you want to log yeah. things and not print them. It's actually uh, pretty neat, especially if uh, you're dealing with like a really huge project. Yeah, so you yeah. want, and you accidentally slip the print in there because you were debugging. Oh, cool. <laughs> Make sure yep. you can uh, keep your code on to par. Even so what I'm project, gathering really from like helpful. all these, I'm gathering from like all these plugins is that you can like put them all together to create like a really a really nice profile or a linter, so you can go through your code and make sure everything's on the up and up before you deploy. That's what I'm gathering. Yes, all these plugins. exactly. Yeah. So you you basically install whichever Flake 8 plugins you want, and generally they execute when you call Flake 8, and you can customize them and configure them however you want, but basically you just look through the list of plugins and say, like, hey, this would be cool for my code, and this would be cool for my code, and this would, like, this would help me. Um, and generally what you'll do is have a list of Flake 8 plugins that you like. And so I always have like my own like flake8 requirements.txt in my homedir that I'll just append to all my python project libraries or like requirements and then I'll go through them and make sure that there's ones that I don't want. Um and there's even platform specific so like I think there's a flake8 flask. I know there's a flake8 django for example. So it will like check your code against django and whatever linters that are there. There's even a flake8 fast api if you're looking for a <laughs> Yeah, actually, that is my last uh, my last library, FastAPI. So, what is FastAPI? It is essentially a framework. So, I think it might be fast, and it's fast, and it's modern, and it lets you create APIs. Cool. Thank you. Moving on. You got twenty twenty one down. Enough said. <laughs> we're we're good for twenty twenty two now. FastAPI. <laughs> yeah. So, FastAPI. Um, it's a framework that lets you turn out web APIs. I'm not sure if it's just RESTful APIs or whether you can play around with it and, and create different types of APIs. Uh, Pretty sure it's just RESTful. Yeah, just RESTful, eh? Yeah, I only know about it because TalkPython is like a huge fan and they just never stop talking about fast API. <laughs> oh, yeah? Uh, then they <laughs> like might never. be outstripping me in knowledge. I gotta say, I've only used fast API once and that was uh, my class over the summer where we had to create an API. But... With that said, I loved using it. It was fast. It was uh, robust. It also uses Pydantic. Uh, uses Pydantic, to, yeah. To that was bullet points. Which is really cool. I, I love the idea. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry I don't actually have a lot to say about it. But go for it, Ty. Take it away. Oh, I think that's it. Um, there's like little uh, create fast API projects that you can find on GitHub that like help you get certain like frameworks going, which is really cool. So if you're right, it's like if you're trying to get started and you're really yeah. scared by like the thousand Python prior like packages that Talk Python tells you to install, you can just use one of those starters. Yeah. I'm a Basically, fan of if, you, uh, if you understand how to use libraries and the libraries that we talked about today, 
noted like they're all like bundled in with fast API so that if you can use them you can use fast fast API easily enough yep yeah well that concludes all my five libraries I think we are missing one of yours right WX I don't know if you want I have to cover that two more. Um, I don't know how many I did so far, though. So we could just do one more. <laughs> just recover them again. <laughs> Start back at one. <laughs> we just go re redo them. Uh, which would you prefer, Flask or WX? We haven't actually. We've done a lot of web stuff. Yeah, so we talk about Flask. We're kind of like beating the horse again. <laughs> yeah. All right. So let's do WX. Then we'll see how we are in time. Um, Although Flask is more of a web server, so right? A web framework? No, it's a, it's a micro framework. Oh, okay. I, I think we can yeah, get through so. both. Let's see. That's 625. We're, we're good. We can get through both. Um, so WX, to kind of split the theme up for a minute, is a Python GUI library. Uh, so one of the things, Python does have tkinter. I forget how people say it. Um, I grew up with Eloquence, so I say tkinter. It basically... You've made fun of me because of this before. I, I, I used I'm to say that. Jinx before, and then he was like, "It's pronounced Nginx." And I'm like, "Ah, oh, excuse me, I grew up with eloquence." My bad. I don't typically <laughs> need a good excuse to make fun of you, though. Nginx. So, TK Enter Tick Enter is very much not accessible when you the the GUIs created with it are not usable, and I think it's because it uses um, I forget what it uses, and I should have known that. Maybe Qt. Uh, but either way, not accessible. And maybe that's changing, I don't know. Uh, but I really like WX widgets, and I've used it in C++. Uh, it's a C++ library by default. And oh, it's really cool for cross-platform. What's that? They got translated to Python? Is it it's like basically the Python? WX Python is a wrapper around WX widgets. Oh, that's essentially how it works. so cool, yeah. So... By de I'm pretty sure that's how it works. Um, by default, I, I really like it in C++ because it's it's object-oriented. And uh, if you're writing anything that you want to be cross-platform, which I typically like to do by default, uh, there aren't like there are not a whole lot of options for that. And if you code against a, a GUI framework, uh, the Windows API has its own Win32 framework, which I used to think I was cool for using. Um, and... Linux, I think, I don't know exactly how the GUI frameworks work in Linux, but WX widgets and WX Python specifically give you a framework of just like controls and window management, and there's tons and tons of stuff you can do with it. It has uh, some, in the C++ side, it has like memory management and dial-up and things like that. I don't think a lot of that is in the Python side. I was going to say, yeah, can you manipulate that through Python or not? No, I don't think so. Um, I don't. You don't need to specifically. It has like its own WX string, for example, which I'm not really sure why they didn't just use like the stdlib uh, string. But you know, um, but it gives you a whole basically repository of controls and events and everything that you can use, and so that you know a list box is a list box, and it will always work as a list box on different platforms. But it doesn't matter which platform you take it to; it will be a list box, and so you can write your code and know that whether it's on Mac or Windows or Linux, it will run and it will work. Uh, the cool part about this is it's also accessible. So based on whichever platform you're, you're running it on, 
you know that generally the code that you write is going to be accessible and it's going to work and you don't have to just do a bunch of extra work. That's amazing. I've uh, I've tried pushing out like GUIs on different uh, different languages. I've tried C and I tried uh, I forgot what uh, GUI library I was using, but it was like the GUIs it was uh, displaying was no good. And I've also tried using like C sharp, also terrible. Use Java, uh, workable, terrible. <laughs> so knowing that uh, how like how accessible out of the box is the GUIs that Python makes. I've never had issues with with anything in WX widgets, unless someone okay. makes their own control. You get a lot with it. Um, you get like docking, so you can move windows around and you can drag them within each other, and you can have like little toolbars and status bars and things like that. Uh, and they show up differently. So the other cool thing about this too, from a non-visual perspective, is that you basically define your windows and your controls and whatever, and they look the way that they're supposed to on different platforms. So Mac is super shiny and they do a lot of like extra stuff. I think all the platforms do, honestly, but people can tell by looking at a screen, like you're on Windows or you're on Mac. And your platform, your program, whatever you're writing will match the look and feel generally of the operating system that it's running on, which is really cool. That is cool. People are picky, man. I said that is cool. I like that. Yeah. It is really cool. Yeah. It helps. It helps. Uh, it makes it much easier to develop across different platforms. And the, the controls are really easy to use. Uh, they're pretty easy to put together. The documentation is great. Whether you're using the C++ or the Python side, it's, it's really cool. Is there a forum? Is there what? Uh, yes, there is, is there actually. Is there a forum? <laughs> yeah. The All WX right. people are really helpful. Um, I don't know if they're still using IRC because there was that whole thing with Freenode getting taken over by the prince of uh, something. Some prince. Some dude took over Freenode. He did. <laughs> big flex, man. Big flex. Um, some guy, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, I think it was, took over Freenode, and so everybody left. And I don't know where everybody went. Uh, but WX used to have a really cool like IRC channel, uh, and I'm sure they still do. But they're also they have mailing lists and forums, and they're really helpful. It's a cool community. Sweet. I want to grow up to be like them someday. My final project or uh, library is Flask. And Flask is a micro-framework for building websites and APIs, basically. Uh, it is server-side. A micro-framework, there's kind of two options. There's Django, which is a fully-featured, uh, yeah, gigantic that's a, framework. That's a beast. <laughs> yeah, it is huge. Compared um, to Flask, there's also Django a mud, is a giant. It, yeah, there's, there's a mud, uh, mud engine written over Django, which I find very strange cool what it, i thought it was and then i started doing things with it and i re, like i hit the limits of what it could do pretty quickly like within resource limits um is it on github that's cool yeah, yeah it's called divinia it's a really cool that's a cool community um i i couldn't use it for a lot of reasons but for smaller projects or just more like simplistic things it can be really cool um but that that is definitely getting off track so Flask is a micro-framework. <laughs> I have not really spent much time with Django because it, it tends to come with a lot more than I want. Flask is a very much, um, you get the basics and then they want you to augment it with the libraries that you want to use and not any other library. So whereas Django locks you into their ORM, for example, Flask says, you know, pick one and choose it and go with it. We don't really care. Uh, and there are plugins and things that make it easier. And so I'll talk about some of my favorite plugins 
one of yeah, the seems to me like a flask aim is to keep the footprint down basically right it is yes so you get much lighter weight websites or apis or whatever for uh, with a lot less resource usage um and there's a lot less code behind all of it in general so you don't really get a website out of the box you have to build a website and you use the roots uh, and decorators so you decorate functions in order to create roots to them um and you basically, the thing I really like about it, so if you've worked with other web frameworks like CodeIgniter for PHP, for example, or um, Symfony, I think is even a good example, a lot of their roots are defined in different places, whereas with Flask, your roots are defined on the methods and functions themselves. So you can do like at root and then like uh, quote slash quote or, and then like uh, define your index function. And that basically tells Flask that Anytime anybody goes to slash, serve up the index function, like call the index function. Cool. So one common misconception is... web servers, right? It is, yes. Well, no, because you can call it whatever you want. You can call the function home or whatever. But like, it's the root decorator that tells you which path to serve up for, for the function. Okay. So that's also where you tell it, like, by default it uses uh, get, but you can tell it to use post and put and other methods as well if you want. Uh, it's a really, really lightweight, easy-to-use framework. I like it. Uh, I've used it for... I don't know if it ever went live. Uh, a friend and I built an app for the United Nations to track like human rights violations. And so the idea was that it was supposed to let you log in and create an account and file or view the status of a human rights violation. And uh, we created like a heat map so you could see like the highest countries with the highest human rights <laughs> violations That's reported. Cool and their resolutions. We did it with Benetech, I believe, which uh, is the kind of parent organization to Bookshare. And I don't know if they ever actually like ran with it or used it because we worked on it for a little bit and then gave it up uh, to, to them to kind of keep going with. But one of the things that we were worried about was in a lot of, comp like in a lot of countries, people are still on dial-up. So you don't really want something that's going to take forever to load. And you also don't want to serve up gigantic blobs of JavaScript. So it was very, very lightweight. Like we can make multiple thousands of requests a second and it would serve them up perfectly fine. And you'd get back pretty minimal data. So where is this app? Uh, do you guys still have it somewhere? Um, I don't, it might be on my GitHub still. It's not open source, but it's, I could try to find it. Sounds useful. You should run it. Well, you should open. Uh, not open it, but uh, deploy it again. <laughs> it sounds useful. Well, the As idea was that they were going a lot to present about... it. Okay, oh, yeah, I get you. No, I was going to say, yeah. as a person who follows a lot of like, human rights stuff, uh, following human rights violation would be cool. Uh, so the idea was that the UN would have like one central website running, so we were building the website for them to take and run. Um, and then you would use that website and we had like login and everything working through it. So, cool. so, um, as with flake eight flask comes with some pretty cool plugins. Um, oh, actually I wanted to talk about a couple of things that it gives you. So one of the really cool things that I like about flask is in the templates, the views, it uses Jinja too for templating. There's a function you can call url4 it's url underscore four and what that does is you provide the name of a or you provide a function 
and it will always use the routing associated with that function. So let's say that you renamed or you moved your login page rather than having to go back and find all the hard-coded lo like login links, it automatically updates for you when you change the URL. So all of the views that point to that login page will just change for you and update. That's cool. I, I really like that, uh, especially yeah. because I've spent time tracking down like broken links on other pages before and mm -hmm. uh, for other jobs, and it was terrible. Not fun. Um, one of the other things it gives you is message flashing. And so the idea is that it stores data that you can pull back from your view. So let's say that you're processing a form and the user inputs in like invalid data. You want to be able to tell them that, but you need to be able to get that into the next request. So it stores for one request only. And like when the layer. page is refreshed... What's that? Like does it does it like an uh, an alert kind of thing? Like a, yeah, so uh, the view okay. has to use it essentially. Like the view has to say like this is where I want the messages to show up. That's cool. But you store the messages on the request, and then when the page refreshes, it it lets you see uh, the view. The template itself has a place where you are a way to get the message that you flashed. Flask does have plugins, uh, and I'll just kind of go quickly through some of them. I haven't used uh, some of them, but I have mm. others. Flask-admin gives you an admin panel, and you basically configure it, and it gives you all the roots and everything uh, already yeah, to go. This is like a, basically a CMS, right? So you can it, have it's an administrative panel. It? Yeah, it's an administrative panel. You can if you set it up. I don't know exactly how far in-depth it goes. I know a lot of people like it. I haven't really done a whole lot with it. What I have mm -hmm. used is Flask-User, which gives you user login and registration and things like that. Uh, there's okay. Flask SQL Alchemy, which we talked about <laughs> SQL Alchemy. Flask SQL Alchemy, <laughs> yeah, it feels like we just covered that. Uh, it wraps it for you, so it provides some Flask-specific uh, functions over the top. It also integrates with the Flask command line, so a lot of Python libraries have a a command line or a command that you can use so like flask db and so f it it adds that to that command processor which is really cool very cool yeah and the last one uh, i wanted to go over is flask dash limiter so it lets you assign rate limits to roots so if someone is hitting a root so oh, some cool. mean terrible scraper <laughs> Is hitting your root too often. It's some bot that some scraper <laughs> bot has not been spreading out his traffic. Yeah. That's what he meant to uh, say. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, you can basically use that to limit how often you can hit certain endpoints or routes, which is really cool. That's cool. Um, you could accomplish most of the same with most web servers, right? Um, uh, with like Nginx or whatever, or Apache. They have options to limit uh, connections, right? You can. The issue, though, is that you have any to... any firewall, really. Yeah. Any firewall will do it. Um, <clears throat> the problem, though, is that you have to deploy it into the configuration. So, like, you have to update the Nginx or Apache or whatever configuration for every system that you deploy it on and remember to do it. One of the things I love about some of these... And, uh, there are some, uh, like, global settings on Nginx, I think, that you might be able to trigger. There, there are, but you yeah. still... You have to somehow let Nginx know, and uh, environments you deploy have to have that sort of built in. Whereas right. if you have a lot of this in the code, every time you deploy it, you can always just change it. You don't have to wait for a system administrator or someone else, uh, or you don't even have to remember. 
uh, part of part of the reason why I like stuff like this is I tend to forget like if I like sometimes I'll set up like rate limiting or something with nginx and then I'll forget next time I deploy a server and so it just won't happen until I need it I'm like wow I did that the other day and I forgot <laughs> Um, so this is in the code, and it's just part of the code, and so you see it all the time. You know it's there. Makes you know sense. where it's gotcha. at, and you don't have to. You don't have to deal with trying to track down where it was handled at, where it was done. Gotcha. I get you now. Cool. Awesome. So that's that it your, for my libraries. All the plugins? Yeah. That is it. Um, I don't have anything else. There's also Flask migrate, which ties in Alembic to the Flask DB command, which is pretty cool. Cool. And uh, Flask SQL Alchemy doesn't uh, bundle that already? Uh, I think Flask SQL Alchemy, I think it it doesn't bring in migration because SQL Alchemy is not, uh, Alembic is an <laughs> add-on to that. I think Flask, I think I misspoke. So Flask SQL Alchemy just provides ways to load configuration and connection strings from Flask configuration and utilities and things around that are Flask-based. I like it. I'll definitely be trying some. Uh, I don't really have reasons to be making websites these days, but... I think I'll find one. I want to play with the, the toolkit, so I am yeah. definitely going to go... Just to uh, play around with it. I think I'll just play around with it. Yeah, I'm super excited to play with the toolkit. Great. Should we recap the, the libraries we went through real quick, and then we can close this up? Uh, so PSUtil for platforms or uh, metrics, processor, CPU, things like that, hard drive space, cross-platform. Fun stuff. Pydantic <laughs> uh, for data validation... Uh, for deserializing and recirculizing from across the wire or networks, also part of FastAPI. SQL Alchemy for uh, providing a wrapper <clears throat> and a SQL agnostic uh, way to work with databases, also an ORM. Also, as we discovered on the podcast, a way to create SQL statements and tables and things if you want to generate them. Flake 8 is a linter. It's great for embedding in your CI/CD pipeline. Also, if you tend to do things from the command line, it's really great for that as well. Uh, usually an IDE will do some of that for you, but... Uh, and each of those has plugins that I won't go into. And we will also link uh, and mention these in our show notes as well. Boy, Flask is a micro framework that lets you build websites and APIs. And gives you also a bunch of different plugins, which are really helpful. And the final one is WX Python for creating cross-platform GUIs. Great, a lot of good stuff there. Uh, as for my list, as you guys might remember, we covered Request, which is a library for generating HTTP requests. Uh, supports several methods, including get, post, delete, put, trace, you name them. It supports them. Uh, then we covered Scrapey, which is a library for scraping the internet for data. There's literally no other way of putting it. <laughs> it's a web scraper. Gives you a, it's open source, so pretty fun stuff. Uh, gives you a web shell so you can monitor and test on the fly. Uh, very easy to write crawlers. Follows the dry principle. Uh, and supports exporting scripts. Cool stuff. We also covered, uh, what did I cover out there? NLTK? Yeah. So the lang yep. natural language toolkit, as we learned on the podcast, is how, how you say it, <laughs> not NLP. Uh, 
good st- uh, lets you translate English language into uh, to code basically and lets you tag uh, words so you can break the parts of speech down into their components of their grammar components and we decided that that would be very interesting to use as a grammar checker uh, we also talked about what did I cover after that Pywood Pywood oh, 32 it, uh... did you get that one already no no oh I forgot about uh No, no, I did request. Uh, what I forgot to mention, request is that it does TLS and SSL uh, browser-like authentication. So this is why I was Artemis. a grown-up and I went and looked at my list, man. <laughs> I am looking at my list, but they're not in any oh. particular order. Okay, my bad. Yeah. So Pi One Thirty Two is a wrapper or around the Windows com uh, lets you do everything that you can accomplish pretty much in Windows, uh, including opening Excel sheets, uh, opening Word docs. Uh, don't quote me on that one. I'm assuming you can't do it. <laughs> Open Word docs. <laughs> I know you can do it. Yeah, Excel. a lot of the Office Suite has like Com yeah. uh, interfaces built in, which is really cool. Yep. Uh, yeah. So that's pretty much that. It uh, just a launcher. Yeah. Um, and Fast API, which is uh, fast, modern, <laughs> and highly robust web framework. Uh, framework for creating web APIs. Can't even get that right. You had me. Uh, it's fast and it's a framework, and go use it. Awesome. <laughs> That's everything. Do we believe we have our gadget to cover, and then the we joke of the program? I did not forget. Cool. I'm glad you brought a joke. I saw one last week, you and know, I should have wrote I'll it have down. To have, like, I, I was going to say, I have to have you bring some jokes in now. I was. I will bring a joke excited. next time. I brought one. <laughs> I, I saw one over the weekend. I was like, oh, that's an amazing joke. I want to bring it, and then I forgot it. <laughs> I'm Sorry, laughing at the bad. memory of it. Yeah, the memory of it's just enough to make me laugh. <laughs> Too bad I can't share a memory. That's in a different Python library that we didn't cover. <laughs> awesome. So gadgets. I think you went first last time, so I can go first this time if you want. Go for it. Yeah. So I did not know a whole lot about these, but my uh, I wanted to highlight awesome repos. So... If you look at GitHub, there's a lot of like awesome-python. I think there's even an awesome-awesome uh, directory. <laughs> and it's a curated list of whatever the topic is. So for awesome-python, it's Python libraries that you can look at. And it's separated by category. Uh, there's all kinds of stuff for like audio editing and for different programming languages and for websites. And uh, there's like an awesome self-hosted for things that you can self-host. And so they're really cool libraries if you're looking to do something and you want to see what options are out there or you just want to go find a cool library to play with or a cool self-hosted app to run or whatever on a rainy day. Sweet. Okay, is that it? Uh, I don't think I have any questions. <laughs> Anything else you want to add to that? or? I think that's it. Yeah. I'm waiting for your Good gadget, stuff. man. Go get it, guys. It's coming. Anticipation. Uh, so my app and i already mentioned this during the show so i kind of super cheated uh is for this week is fail to ban and i love it it's awesome let me tell you what it can do uh so what fail to ban does it monitors your logs does it and fail? uh yeah it fails people named tyler <laughs> automatically okay, cool. that's the default awesome. behavior you have to change it when you download it <laughs> failure so, is not um, an option man All right. it monitors your logs and monitors for failure authentications in which case if it detects enough tries or enough attempts in a certain uh, time frame it will ban the user it will ban their ip for a specified amount of time 
Now, what's super cool about fail to ban is it comes with uh, well, what it lets you do it lets you separate each uh, each instance into what they call jails, and these jails are uh, they'll contain like information about where to look for the log file, which is what makes it super versatile. Uh, the rejects on which to match to, and uh, also you can def uh, define like different uh, parameters on it, so like max t max attempt, uh, the ports on which it'll watch, uh, the ban time. Things like that, and ban time can range super high. Like, I one of my in my server, I put like seventy two hours for a one time failure. Wow. <laughs> like, if Don't you fail once, the server. <laughs> kick you out. Just to see if it was possible, and it, it works. Let me like visit your house. Like, you did not put the toilet seat down. Seventy two hour ban from the bathroom. Seventy two years ban. A thousand years of darkness. <laughs> So yeah, uh, so like I mentioned, you can point it to look at whatever logs. So you can, theoretically, you can, if you know how to match uh, the rejects and how to write the rejects, and it gives you tools for testing your rejects as well. I should add that on top of that. And it gives you a, uh, a client so you can manipulate it on the spot as well. So you can also, you can ban IPs and unban IPs from the client. That's but really cool. if you, yeah, right? I thought the client was a great touch instead of just uh, all being configuration files. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was pretty cool. Um, the thing I love about this is that we talked about it last week, and you're like, "Oh, that's super cool!" And now you're coming back to no, it with no, stuff no, that no. I didn't we even know it could do. We mentioned it. We said I didn't like, even oh, know it could do some I... of this stuff. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> but I literally downloaded it, and I'm like, "Oh, this is so cool!" Especially because you could make it watch any log you want and match to whatever string you want. And that is really yeah. cool. So you could you don't have to only like lock it to uh, authentication. You could lock it to like DOS attack and things like that. Um, and it comes with a bunch of uh, like standard jails. Sorry, my allergies are acting up again. Comes with a bunch of standard jails, including like super popular ones like WordPress, N Nginx, uh, Drupal, uh, SS SSHD. Four letters, guys. The worst. <laughs> um, which <laughs> yeah, which comes automatically enabled by default. SSHHHDDDDD. Shut. Yeah, SSH shut. And yeah, really cool. Check it out. You can make it watch any log you want and do its magic. Awesome. Yeah. Um, I think it's time for a joke now, after that big old spiel. You ready it's for that? time for a joke. I am ready for a All joke. Right. We, need to, uh, we need to get like a, drums, a drum roll sound so we can queue up whenever it's time for the joke. Do you really want me to try to queue up a sound? I couldn't even get the intro to work. Can you, please? <laughs> I mean, we have like six minutes. Can you do it in six minutes? <laughs> No, I cannot. I am done trying to queue up sounds of SPL. I am going on strike. <laughs> Alright, here's the joke, ladies and gentlemen. <clears throat> this is hopefully all the programmers out there. <clears throat> Why did the functions stop calling each other? Because it had too many arguments! <laughs> I need a rim shot sound for that one. <laughs> Get it? Functions? Yes, arguments? Yes. Get it? Thank Get you. it? Oh, that was great. <laughs> Thank you for explaining that. <laughs> Thank you. Ooh. I will bring a real shot down for the next one. Yeah. <laughs> well, guys, this is episode three, and it's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you for joining us for episode three, which eventually launched. Eventually. Yeah. Eventually. Yep. All right. All right, later, guys. Awesome. Stay tuned for Metal Amped, and uh, definitely join us on Sunday at 10 a.m. with your coffee and your uh, breakfast for and your CV, CV stats, stats questions. questions. 
If it helps, it's uh, nice to pull up the website. It's currently online, cvstats.net. So once we're on Sunday, if you guys want to log on to that and ask your questions, we'll be happy to filter them. Yeah. And please feel free to join our Discord. We've mentioned it on Twitter. Uh, I will find a way to put it on our uh, <laughs> on our podcast feed and get Just it out. Remember to link it's also in the show notes like as well, I think. 42 characters. I, yep, exactly. All right, thanks for joining. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Technically Sound with Barrack Rosso and Tyler Littlefield. You can find us at techsound underscore cast at, on Twitter or email us at technicallysound at venom.fm. 